Similar to a well-tuned automobile, a guitar requires the same level of attention to perform at its very best. No matter how expensive your guitar may be, we will treat you and your instrument with the utmost respect. Call 920-723-1733 or visit jeffsguitar.com. Jeff's Guitar Clinic in Ford Atkinson, we love guitars. The attorneys at Jingris, Thompson & Walks have had the honor of receiving numerous awards for their work both in and outside the courtroom. But just as important as receiving accolades for being skilled attorneys, it's equally important to give back to the community in which they live and work. If you want a personal attorney that can help you in so many different areas, they've got them. They're in Eau Claire, Madison, Milwaukee, and Waukesha. They're easy to reach. GTWlawyers.com. That's GTWlawyers. Welcome to another podcast at SliceOffice.com. Brought to you by our friends at the Madison Teamsters, Local 695, and the Operating Engineers, Local 139. Joining us now... John Nichols from the Capital Times and the Nation. John, uh, we had lots of conversations leading up to this election, and I think we were both a little maybe confused in what might happen. Uh, tell me what you thought of as the polls were closing. What were you expecting? I believe the term is woof or woof. You know what I mean? <laughs> How do you express, like, um, man, dodge that one? Uh, look, the the important thing to point out is that you and I and just about everybody else, not every, there's a few folks wiser than us, but just about everybody thought that Tuesday was going to be a day of Republican surge, maybe even a Republican wave. And I went back and looked at some of the headlines in major papers and things like that, even a Republican tsunami. The concept that Republicans would have a 1994 or 2010-style victory. Now, to our credit, I'm going to give us a little bit of points here. You and I both said in some of our conversations that it wouldn't be like 2010 or 1994 because the U.S. is more closely divided, right? We, we've gone to more ideological uh, edges. As, as a country, and so it's, there isn't as much of a, of a swing middle there. Um, but uh, the bottom line is I think we all anticipated that Tuesday was a day where the country could make a major tip, perhaps the House, the Senate, major governorships across the country, toward an extreme Republican Party that really was threatening to democracy. Instead, we got a purple election in which it looks like uh, if the Republicans get the House, it'll be narrowly. It probably won't get the Senate. And so far, uh, the Democrats have picked up at least two governorships. It looks like they might get three. And they've reelected governors in the critical battleground states of Pennsylvania, Michigan, and, yes, Wisconsin. Well, and they picked up the majority in the legislature in Minnesota and Michigan. Yeah, and, and um, there's, there's actually some other ones that are still in play. It, it looks like that when all is said and done, Tuesday is going to turn out to have been the most successful midterm election for a first-term Democratic president since Franklin Roosevelt in 1934. And Joe Biden was around for that, so this is awesome. Yeah, no, he wasn't. <laughs> he wasn't born until several, several weeks later. Uh, here's, a, 
Here's how people were talking on uh, everyone's favorite fair and balanced news channel. Be an analyst for a second. Does it feel like a red wave? It feels like a red wave, Brian. You know, your predictions of a red wave are accurate. Somebody made a surfboard, said the red wave is coming. Red wave rising. That red wave that I'm convinced is coming. The reports I'm seeing show a big red wave coming. Sleepy Joe just guaranteed a red wave in Pennsylvania. There's a lot of energy on the ground. You probably hear the rally in the background right now. We think we're going to have a big red wave in Michigan. Wow. Democrats are bracing for the worst case scenario, a red tsunami. We are officially on a red tsunami watch. Sean, we're going to see a red tsunami. Red tsunami grows. That means red tsunami. And we're not just going to see a red wave. We're going to see a red tsunami. Poverty, joblessness, critical race theory, crazy gender ideology in our schools. We are going to see a red tsunami. And lastly, your prediction for tonight. I think we're going to have a red wave. I think it's going to be maybe bigger than anyone thought. On Tuesday, we will be part of a big red wave that says enough is enough. Up next, Elon Musk ready to ride the big red wave. Elon Musk tweeted massive red wave. Massive red wave. Massive red wave. Massive red wave. You are about to see a red wave that makes day after tomorrow look like nothing. A red wave in Michigan. So, you know, this isn't the only red wave that failed to deliver this year. Vladimir Putin's red wave didn't go so well. <laughs> My, you're, you're making you're making uh, global connections there. So. I am. Well, they're so intertwined now with the modern Republican Party. Well, you know that's one of the one of the interesting things about this election was that it it had a lot of sub themes, and uh, certainly a lot of the pundit class said, "Well, it's all about inflation," and that, that's appropriate. Inflation is hugely important, and it is an issue. But when you you're you're disappearing a little, you're fuzzing out a little bit on me here, John. Your phone. I think he, oh, man. <laughs> uh, when you looked at the election poll or at the exit polls, what you saw was that uh, big issue. So, too, was obviously abortion rights ranked very high. And then when people were asked about, you know, issues like preserving American democracy, issues like America's role in the world, America is a leader on democracy issues. Uh, it turns out a lot of people were really concerned about that. And one of the mistakes that pundits tend to make is that they go at the top-line issue, right? They say, well, inflation's bad, then that's it. The, the thing is settled. Nothing else really matters. Or crime is a concern. It's going to wipe out everything else. The fact is voters are more nuanced. They, they put a variety of factors into play when they make their decision. Um, and it, as it turned out, as it turned out, that the interesting thing about Tuesday's election is that across the country, not just in, in, you know, battleground states, but in a lot of places, a lot of unexpected places across the country, you saw that those concerns about the extremism of the Republican Party came into play. That's why Lauren Boebert is in trouble in a congressional district that's overwhelmingly Republican. That's why in Arizona... It is looking, it's certainly not settled yet, but it's sure looking like Democrats who were written off may well win uh, most of the key statewide races. And it is why, as we look at the congressional races around the country, you, know, you and I are talking several days after the election. Kevin McCarthy still doesn't have his majority. Yeah, that party kind of got a little uh, wet blanket on it. Here's... Uh 
All right, listen to this. The general consensus is, and all the data is telling us that that a Republican wave is building uh, across the country. The generic congressional ballot. You see the movement in the in the Senate races. You see the movement in the House races and the governor's races. That's the narrative. On the eve of the election, Fox Primetime was still citing that same source, Real Clear Politics, for their polling averages, pushing a red wave. The Senate projections, all of it to keep up the hype. The polls show Democrats sinking and Republicans rising. Democrats blew every lead they had. Smart Money says Republicans take the Senate, winning the majority by 53 seats to 47. That's what Real Clear has it at right now. A wave like this, we should know that, that night, basically, who won the Senate and the House. Yeah, if it was that big a wave, it would all be decided that night. That's last Tuesday. You notice he had a banner there that told everyone to, quote, shut up. And the Democrats blew it. And all of that future tense, red wavy stuff. Didn't work out that way. The Senate is close no matter what. It's still not decided as of Tuesday night. That same poll site, by the way, was once considered a kind of go-to source for election junkies that then morphed rightward and pro-Trump. We can't... Okay, so... Yeah. Uh, why would real clear politics have such erroneous numbers, John? We had a conversation about this yesterday. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Look, it's very clear there was a strategy by... Uh, Republicans and some of their allies who are pollsters, some of their some of the people that they pay as pollsters, uh, to create a, a false narrative, to uh, flood the the zone, if you will, with polls that suggested that Republicans were surging, that they were ahead, that races that weren't close were were really close. There was actually, if you can believe it, I told you about this yesterday, slide. There was a poll that was put out shortly before the election that suggested that the Vermont U.S. Senate race, which Peter Welch uh, was running up there as a Democrat, that the Vermont U.S. Senate race was a seven-point race, i.e. the Democrat was only ahead by seven points. I mean, that's the kind of poll that if you looked at it and you trust it, you're going to say, wow, this race really is closing. If Vermont's a problem area, uh, then, you know, the whole country must be going off the cliff. Well, Peter Welch won by, like, I think, I haven't seen the final polls, but something like 40, a 40-point 40 win. Um, and we saw that in places across the country. You, you had polls put into the mix, treated seriously, treated as, you know, the equivalent in Wisconsin, the equivalent of a Marquette poll, and they just weren't that. Now, it's possible the pollsters were incompetent, right, just completely inept, but what we're, you know, an awful lot of people are speculating, and I think there's, there's reason to at least explore this possibility, is that you had pollsters putting polls into the mix that were skewed toward the Republicans and created a, a false narrative. Uh, and and we've, this had a real impact. I can tell you, it, you and I live in Wisconsin, Sly, and one of the impacts in Wisconsin was that you had polls that, that kept saying Mandela Barnes in the Senate race was down, you know, six, seven more points. I mean, you started, it started to add up to a narrative that suggested that he was really out of the running. When, in fact, uh, as you got closer to the race, or closer to Election Day, credible, credible polls were showing that Barnes was surging, that he was closing the gap. And, in fact, he did close the gap. Okay, he didn't win the seat, but he came within 26,000, 27,000 votes out of millions cast. So, it's, it's been kind of an interesting 
phenomenon with polling. There was the whole thing where pollsters were having a tough time getting Trump voters to be honest in these calls. Uh, I don't know if you've talked to Charles Franklin or any of the other pollsters. Do they think they have that problem solved? I think that, you know, I, I've talked to Charles now and again, but I, I, I will tell you that if you look at the Marquette poll in Wisconsin, and we'll use that as sort of a classic quality poll. I, you and I have often criticized the Marquette poll. We found things in it that we didn't like or that we were ill at ease with, but at the end of the day, it, it usually turns out to be pretty accurate. Well, you know, take a look at what the last Marquette poll showed. It showed that uh, Mendel Barnes, who had been down in previous polling from Marquette by as much as six points, had closed it to a two-point race. Um, clearly, that suggests a Barnes surge. If you then time that out to Election Day, uh, where Barnes got to a virtual tie, uh, I would say, yeah, it looks like the Marquette poll was doing a pretty good job, pretty good job in that race of charting it. What I, I don't think that they quite got, uh, although it was a more complex race for a couple of reasons, was the clear surge that um, uh, Tony Evers, the Wisconsin gubernatorial candidate, had. I mean, there, something big happened with, with Evers in that final stage of the race, and he opened up a, a much more substantial lead. I don't think people have even yet fully comprehended uh, the shift that took place uh, for Evers in the Milwaukee suburbs. And, and that's something that I think all of the pollsters may have had a little bit of a hard time catching. So as far as voters reacting negatively to Trumpism and some of the stuff mm -hmm. going on, do you think Speaker Pelosi's uh, husband being attacked had something to do with what, what happened? Do you think that that was a reminder of January 6th? Maybe a reminder of that, maybe a reminder of other things, but it, it was in the mix, right? By, and, you know, one of the things that uh, I interview posters, I interview voters a lot, right? And, and, you know, just at events and different things, even outside polling places over the years, and you just talk to them. What you find is that that for voters who are a little uncertain on where they're going to go, for you know, they may lean one way or the other, but they're kind of thinking about it, they, they don't often go in, you know, with one big issue. Right and say, oh well, I decided this morning that I really don't like inflation, or I decided this morning I'm really concerned about abortion rights. Usually, with those voters, there tends to be a mood shift. Right, they're like, you know, there's just a lot of things happening that are concerning me, and at the end of the day, it just made me decide to go this way. And I do think that what happened with Paul Pelosi, which was a huge news story in the final days of the campaign, uh, for I would imagine, again, we're talking about some of those, say, Milwaukee suburbs, and, and again, talking to some extent about um, suburban women who are a key targeted group, um, just a sense that it's getting pretty chaotic out there. It's getting pretty scary out there. And, boy, when you've got, with your choice, again, and I'm not trying to make this just Wisconsin because I know we're talking broader, but if, you, if you've got a situation where you've got a candidate who's endorsed by Donald Trump, uh, who has you know, flirted with election denialism and some of those things. Candidate who is an acknowledged boring administrator, right? Who's, you know, like, like you know, I just want to do the job. I, I, I don't want to make a lot of headlines, etc. That can seem very reassuring. The boring administrator seems rather attractive. 
Here is Congressman Andy Biggs from Arizona. We can't wait to get back to Washington, D.C. with some new Arizona congressmen. And we're going to show Nancy Pelosi the door very shortly. Don't let it hit you on the backside, Nancy. Hey, the, yeah, yeah, she's she's losing the gavel but finding the hammer. Too soon? Is that too soon? If you ever spoke like that, what would your mother say to you? Well, my mother's a pretty pretty tough character, um, but. Uh, I, I think my father, actually, who was the much more proper, you know, character, would have said, um, you know, two things. Number one, you are wrong, right? You're 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 behaving badly. But number two, you're not going to really influence anybody with that, right? You know it, that that it, did you notice that in the uh, in the crowd there when he said that members of the crowd kind of gasped. He's at a, at a big Republican event, and his own people are like, whoa, come on, this is, this is going too far. And that's why he said, you know, too soon or something like that. Um, this is one of the, the, the complexities of our politics, and you asked about my mom. And the fact of the matter is I was with my mom on the day before the election, and we were talking about it all. And, and she's been around politics all her life. Her, her grandfather was a political activist in southwest Wisconsin in the, you know, in the 1930s. Um, and, and I think what she would tell you and what, what people like her would tell you is politics has always been a rough and tough game. But it's generally been rough and tough because of uh, a set of ideological differences, you know, of, of disagreements on, on issues. And, and people really can disagree on issues. But something became so personalized with Nancy Pelosi um, and and this sort of I mean it was, it was they they made her into a hate figure they made her into somebody that you know sort of to be blamed for all of America's problems and and I do think that sat poorly with with a lot of a lot of folks ultimately that it was and, and, and if I could say one last thing aside I think sometimes politicians political activists they get into their own echo chamber and they take what they would say kind of in the back room behind the scenes and they put it out front on the podium and it just doesn't sound very good. It sounds bad. We'll take a break. John Nichols from the Capital Times and the Nation at SlyOffice.com. I want to thank all the labor unions here in Dane County that help keep SlyOffice.com up and going so you keep up to date, whether it be the Madison Firefighters, Local 311, or the Madison Teamsters, Local 695, or our friends at Madison Teachers Incorporated. These are some of the most active local unions who organize, 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 and constantly stand up for workers. Thank you from SlyOffice.com. When you're looking for a new computer or need help with one you already own, call 231-8000 and Madison Computer Works will get things up and running for you. Madison Computer Works, computers that work for you. We're back at SlyOffice.com, brought to you by Madison Computer Works and also our friends at Jeff's Guitar Clinic. All right, we're back with John Nichols from the Capital Times and the Nation. Hey, got another clip for you here. This is President Biden. 
how do you reassure them if that is the reason for their questioning that the former president will not return or that his political movement which is still very strong uh, will not oh, yeah. once again take power in the United <laughs> States well um, we just have to demonstrate that he will not take power who do you think would be the tougher competitor, Ron DeSantis or former President Trump? And how is that factoring into your decision? It'll be fun watching them take on each other. <laughs> Obviously, a lot of attention on 2024 now that the votes have been cast in the midterms. Two thirds of Americans in exit polls say that they don't think you should run for reelection. What is your message to them? And how does that factor into your final decision about whether or not to run for reelection? It doesn't. What's your message to them? To those two thirds of the Watch me. Man, he's, he's feeling pretty good. <laughs> I think I could have been decent performance there, but I, I hope the dark glasses were on. Um, you know, look, the, the thing that's important about that was, was kind of buried a little bit in the midst of it is that question of, you know, who do you think would be a stronger opponent, you know, DeSantis or Trump? And it's, it's going to be fun to watch them take each other on. You know what I mean? It's like, that's Joe Biden at, at his uh, most deeply political. This is a guy who's been involved in politics now, you know, not for 50 years. If you look at it, really look at his you know trajectory, we're talking now in the better part of uh, 55 years, right? He's been active in politics, and he came up in a in a tough political scene around Wilmington, Delaware. Um, and, you know, what he's looking at is sort of the dream scenario of, of any political figure, and that is that your opponents are attacking each other. Right, that, that the people who are trying to take you down are in fact trying to take each other down, and you know I have said, and I think I said it to you, I think the biggest loser on Tuesday was Ron DeSantis, and everybody say, well, how could that be? The New York Times is now saying Ron DeSantis is the stronger candidate, and and you know everybody's talking about Ron DeSantis's big win in Florida. Well, the fact of the matter is, Ron DeSantis on Tuesday became the face of the anti-Trump. Republican establishment. And the fact of the matter is, he's just as bad as Trump, maybe worse in some ways. But um, that's the image he's going to have. And I'm going to tell you something, Donald Trump is going to have the time of his life. You're going to see a more happy Donald Trump than at any time in years as he you know, goes about the work of taking apart Ron DeSantis. And I would say to Ron DeSantis, um, you know, he may prevail. I mean, I don't know how it'll turn out. It's, it's going to be a messy, awful battle. But I would say to Ron DeSantis, you really ought to go back and look at some of those videos of Scott Walker on the debate stage in 2015, standing next to Trump, as Trump shredded him. Because Ron DeSantis looks a lot like Scott Walker to me. Well, it'll be interesting to see. Uh, but, you know, the President Trump is probably facing being indicted. So we oh, have yeah. that into the mix. We have that into the mix, and of course, some say that will help him politically. But yeah. I, I do think he's, I do think he's damaged. I do think he's wounded. Uh, Very badly. So, but you know, sometimes when people get wounded, is when they get their meanest. Well, they do, but he's also badly damaged because um, there's been polling recently that shows that uh, people who previously identified as primarily in their politics pro-Trump, are now more identifying as pro-Republican. The Republican Party has transformed. It has become, in some cases, something more extreme than Donald Trump. And uh, as a result, 
there will be a growing portion of the Republican Party that says, you know, look, uh, we actually maybe like Donald Trump a lot, but um, we do see him as a burden to getting what we want. All right. and, uh, and his candidates, uh, the candidates, his self-selected candidates, proved to be quite a burden for the Republicans this time. All right, let's throw another person into the mix. Here is Carrie Lake from Arizona. What I think they're doing is slow rolling our victory. They want to take the air out of this movement, and they can't do it because it's a movement, and we the people are fed up, and we're not going to slow down. We're not going to let them take the fire out of our belly. And so they slow roll the results. You know, Ron DeSantis goes out, gives his big speech, and then they want to make it look like the Trump Republicans don't have a chance. We do. We're going to win. I'm 100% sure of that. I think that Blake may even win. Welcome to Republicans in Disarray. Right? This, this goes to the, the premise of the earlier conversation, this, this notion that they're going to quickly get past Donald Trump or this rapid coordination of Ron DeSantis yeah. is not happening, and here's why. In the last 72 hours, Carrie Lake has thrown her loyalty to Donald Trump. Matt Gates has said Donald Trump's the next president. Uh, Elise Stefanik, who actually holds a leadership position in the House, has said, I'm endorsing Donald Trump. Start to ask Rick Scott and other senators who will be in the 24 reelect cycle, are you supporting Donald Trump or not? And the problem is, look, some of them will do it out of fealty and loyalty and craziness. That's the Carrie Lake play. But the others, like Rick Scott, will do it because they have to. All right. That's David Jolly, former Republican mm-hmm. congressman from Florida, essentially same, saying the same thing you are. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, look, I, I cover politics. I don't, don't claim to be right about politics all the time. There are times that, you know, all of us may, may see something and turns out to, to be a little bit different than what we, we anticipated. But what I can tell you is, having covered Donald Trump for a long time, and and seeing you know how he operates, he likes having an opponent in the Republican Party. That gives him joy. And uh, and one of two things will happen: either Trump will prevail, or um, he will go down with and take DeSantis with him. And and so uh, I I look at this as a situation that is kind of perfectly made for, for Biden and the Democrats. At a time when um, there is going to be divided governance, I do think ultimately, although it would be a very narrow margin, Republicans are going to take control of the House. That's going to make maneuvering in Washington a lot tougher. And so it's going to shift the energy toward the question of what happens in 2024. I mean, there'll be obsessive coverage of, of this, you know, preparation for the 2024 race. And what a lot of that attention is going to be on is a Republican Party in disarray, people fighting with one another. And one final thing I'll tell you is, um, uh, you know, the Carrie Lake's notion that they're slow walking her victory, um, you know, that, uh, that the sort of, uh, you know, denialism, that's the sort of, you know, rejection of reality rather than, you know, like letting the votes be counted, seeing where it turns out, that, that you know, reinforces concerns upon uh, on the part of voters that this is a party that really doesn't take democracy seriously. And and so the combination of the disarray and some very bad messaging, I think is quite beneficial to the Democrats in this post-election period. All right. There's three Senate seats that have yet to be decided. Uh, how do you think that's going to play out? Well, I, look, the numbers in Arizona 
keep widening. And it looks like Mark Kelly down there is in a pretty good position, uh, the Democrat, to hold that seat. In Nevada, it's obviously a lot closer and a lot more complex. I, I, you know, listen to people on the ground in Nevada, like John Ralston and others, who say that they believe that uh, Senator Cortez Masto, the Democrat, will prevail there as well. Um, you know, I'm, I'm going to keep watching those numbers come in. If, obviously, the Democrats take those two seats, uh, then they've got their, they have their 50-50, and then with Kamala Harris, they've got the majority. Uh, that's going to take a little bit of the pressure off the Georgia uh, runoff election. Obviously, if Cortez Masto goes down, then the Georgia runoff becomes pretty much you know, it's the definitional race for where you're headed as regards Washington. Um, but no matter what, the Georgia runoff is going to be a big deal. And my anticipation is that we're in a situation now, uh, if everything goes as it appears to be going, where uh, the Georgia runoff will be to add a seat to the Democratic majority, i.e. to give the Democrats 51-49. And that's a pretty remarkable thing, because, again, in the first segment there, we were talking about you know how to put this election in perspective. Uh, it is very, very rare for the party of and uh, a new Democratic president to add a seat to his Senate majority. Um, that is a real possibility this time, and well, it's, it's important. Donald Trump never went away. So, seriously, President Biden's had basically a shadow president his entire tenure. And so yep. he, never, he never got to be up on television with his predecessor standing next to him and the the transition of power going in a, a, a normal way. So uh, I think Biden in some ways got a benefit out of that. Uh, by the way, uh, real quick as we wrap up here, we really haven't talked about the issues of the first two years of the Biden administration. Not unpopular issues like the Affordable Care Act was in 2010. Do you think that President Biden and the Democrats' agenda for the first two years helped the Democrats achieve what they did in this midterm? Sure, I think it helped, uh, particularly, you know, some of the immediate reaction to the, the pandemic and, and to the, frankly, the, the instability that there was as regards the economy and as regards a lot of uh, state, local governments, educational institutions, which got resources when they needed them because of President Biden and the Democrats. And, and so I, I do think that, that there's, a, there's a play out there. Obviously, the Biden administration got tripped up in some of its, its bigger initiatives because of uh, Manchin and Cinema making it hard to move things in the Senate. But at the end of the day, they got a good infrastructure bill. Um, they got a, you know, kind of a modified build back better, or at least build back a little. Um, and so I, I do think that, that Biden came out looking like two things that are important. One, a president who, even in difficult circumstances, can get some things done and some good things done. And two, like a stable presence, somebody who you know, is going to keep working at it, keep plugging away. And, you know, I'll note that on the morning that we talked, the New York Times headline is, inflation starting to taper in positive sign for the Fed. Stock surge on news that a string of rate increases is helping to tame prices. So, and. Um, and Russia's had to concede more territory. That's right. And so the weird part is that that I think that there were things going on right as the election occurred, you know, where 
where voters may have felt it before the pollsters did and before even the politicians did, that while this has been a very difficult year and a very challenging time, that some of the strategies that Joe Biden has adopted, if you look at them over the long run, seem to be working. And the fact is, if this is, if, if this is where we're headed, um, then Joe Biden, you know, whether you like him or not, is looking like a much stronger re-election candidate now um, than he did, say, a couple weeks ago. So within the week before the election, both George Will and Jennifer Rubin, two conservative writers, uh, columnists, both wrote pieces telling Democrats they've got to dump Biden. What's mm-hmm. that all about? Well, these are people who, you know, failed in their own party, right? They, they wanted their own party to be, a, you know, sort of very pro-corporate, you know, you know relatively uh, mild party as regards to some of the, some of the other issues. Um, and they didn't get that, right? Their party ended up being something that, uh, that went, went away from them, went away from who they were. They had no political home, so then they decided to come over and tell the Democratic Party how to operate, right? They failed to get the Republican Party to do what they wanted, so now they came over and tell the Democrats. Well, you know, the fact of the matter is that, that these are people who have their own agendas. They aren't the agenda of the Democratic Party. They may be, you know, I give Will and, and others credit, or that they that their agenda may be a concern about America, right? And I, I respect them for that, but they're not they're not coming in as people who are concerned at core about you know how does the Democratic Party do, et cetera. And I don't think anybody's taking them seriously. In fact, at this point, I will tell you that they are probably taken less seriously than at any time up to this point, and um, that's a healthy thing. Mm. It's not to pick on them. It is just to say... No, in no way have you inferred that they're irrelevant. <laughs> no. Yeah, <but> it's, <laughs> I, I, lo- I love it when you stick that dagger in and twist it around a little bit and you go, now, I don't mean, I don't mean to denigrate them in any way, shape, or form. <laughs> Look, they're both, let's be honest, they're both horrible people. Horrible people. Well... Let me put it another way. <laughs> oh, no, that's the way I want to put it. They're both horrible people. And I, I, Let me add just one thing to the mix. Political parties are best served uh, by people that actually care about them, right? That people who are actually interested in, you know, where they go and what their trajectory is. Um, and when you have people who come in who got, you know, kind of dumped out of their own political home and are now looking to move into the, the other home, um, you got to be a little suspicious, right? You got to ask yourself, you know, is the advice these people are giving really helpful? And I am not going to tell you that that you know that Joe Biden shouldn't be criticized. You and I have both criticized him, and there's plenty to there'll be plenty of ups and downs going forward. But the fact of the matter is that you know Joe Biden just had again it's the third time I'll say it. Joe Biden just had the best midterm for any sitting Democratic president, you know, on, on the actual numbers, like movement and going against the patterns and the, the, the challenges uh, since Franklin Roosevelt in 1934. All right. We're out of time, but I want to ask you a, a quick question, kind of a yes or no thing here. Okay. Does President Biden benefit from being underestimated? Every day of the week. 
John Nichols from the Capital Times and the Nation. Thanks for coming to Sly's Office. Pleasure, my friend. Sly'sOffice.com. Thanks a million. Bye-bye.